Chapter 23 Seven and Nine Years Among the Comanches and Apaches An Autobiography by Edwin Eastman This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The War Party the following morning found me entirely occupied with my new plan of escape, and I lost no time in gaining such information as I could concerning Stone Hawan's intentions respecting his projected expedition. By making a few cautious inquiries of some of the warriors whom I knew to be favorably disposed towards me, I learned that the party would probably depart within three days. The first point necessary to the success of my plan was to obtain the consent of Wakometla, and this, I feared, would be no easy task. After considering the matter fully, I concluded that my best course would be first to get Stone Hawan's permission to accompany the party, and, if possible, induce him to intercede for me with the old medicine man. To the lodge of this redoubtable chief, I accordingly bent my steps, and on approaching it, found him seated without, engaged in conversation with several of the older warriors. Not daring to interrupt their conference, I remained at a little distance until the interview was ended. From the few sentences I overheard, I concluded that the chief was unfolding his plans, or some portion of them, to the principal warriors of his party. Directly, the council seemed to be over, and the warriors separated, leaving the chief seated as before at the entrance to his lodge. I was about to approach him and proffer my request, when Hisu Dicha, the renegade, suddenly made his appearance, and walking directly up to Stone Hawan, addressed him as follows. My brother is going on the warpath. Yes. Hisodicha, said the chief, I am weary of this idleness, and my young men are impatient and clamor to be led against the Arapahoes, who have invaded our territory and cut off several of our hunting parties. I have therefore determined to take out a strong party and strike a blow that will teach these cowardly horse-thieves a lesson. Stone Hoan, said Hisodicha, it is my wish that we should be friends, and that the ill-feeling which has existed between us and our young men should cease. For this reason, I have come to offer you my services on your expedition 
as a volunteer, and if you accept my offer, I will join your party with my entire band and serve under your orders. Let my brother speak. I await his decision. While Hiso Dicha was speaking, I observed a gratified expression upon the countenance of Stone Owan, and I saw that he would gladly avail himself of the renegade's offer. But why Hiso Dicha should make so unusual a proposition puzzled me extremely, and I awaited anxiously to hear the remainder of their conversation. As the renegade ceased speaking, Stone Hwan arose in silence, filled and lighted his pipe and passed it to Hiso Dicha, who took a few whiffs and returned it to the chief. The latter followed his example, and then, emptying the pipe, he returned it to its case of fawn skin, gaily decorated with the quills of the porcupine, stained in bright colors, and spoke as follows. Hisodicha, your words are good. You are a great brave, and you shall ride with me on the war path. With your aid, I shall surely be successful, and when we return in triumph, who shall deny to the friend of Stone Hawan a seat in the council? I know my brother's wish, and it shall yet be gratified. Now, let us assemble our warriors and make ready for departure, as I wish to start before sunrise tomorrow. To this, the renegade yielded a ready assent adding that his party could be ready to leave in an hour if necessary. He then said, I must ask my brother one favor, and that is that Da-Tek-A-Daher may accompany our party. Why does Hiso Decha ask this? said the chief, looking at me in surprise. For on hearing my name mentioned, I had drawn nearer. Does my brother not know that no one but Wako Mekla can grant his request? Because, said Hisodicha, if Stone Owan asks the medicine chief, he will not refuse. But were I to make such a request, it would be in vain. Stone Hwan reflected for a moment, and then addressed me so abruptly that for an instant I was confused and unable to make a reply. Tatekadahir, said he, why do you wish to join the war party, which I am about to take out? I was endeavoring to frame a reply when the renegade answered for me. The young man is tired, he said, 
of being left in the village with the squaws and old men while the other young braves are going to war or to hunt and winning scalps and plunder. He thinks that he should be given the same privileges as others since he has been regularly adopted into the tribe. And I think his request is a reasonable one and should be granted. I now added my persuasions to those of Hiso Decha, and Stone Hawan finally said that if Wakumekla's consent could be gained, he would have no objection to my forming one of his party. He also said that he would speak to the medicine chief and use his influence to get his consent to my making my first appearance as a warrior. He was as good as his word, and a few hours later I saw him enter the temple, evidently in search of the old man. Hisodicha was confident that his request would be granted, and I accordingly busied myself, under his direction, in preparing to make my debut as a Comanche brave on the warpath. The renegade easily supplied me with the necessary weapons and equipments from his own stock, and I soon found myself provided with a long steel pointed lance, adorned with a crimson pennon, and a sort of battle axe of an ancient pattern, evidently the spoil of some Mexican hacienda. Besides these, a war bow, a quiver of arrows, their points dipped in the subtle poison used by the Comanches, and a tomahawk and scalping knife were given me. These completed my offensive equipments. For defense, besides all these, I received a circular shield made of the tough hide of the buffalo bull stretched upon a wooden frame and dried and hardened until it was almost of the consistency of iron. To provide me with a horse was the next thing in order, and this did not promise to be very difficult, as more than two thousand mustangs were grazing upon the plain. The renegade, however, was not easily suited in his choice of a horse. Thorough horse jockeys, as all the Comanches are, his so ditcha seemed the sharpest of the tribe in this particular. Of this fact I had become aware long before, for in the races which the Indian so frequently indulged in, he was almost invariably the winner, thus showing that he possessed rare knowledge and judgment of the points of a good horse. On this occasion, I began to think that he would exhaust the supply before he found one to his mind, but after rejecting about forty for one fault or another, most of which blemishes I was entirely unable to discover, he fixed upon a large piebald mustang as the one who should have the honor of bearing me upon my first warpath. 
leading the horse back towards the village, we soon reached the spot where the warriors who were to form the expedition had already picketed their horses for the night, so as to be ready for an early start on the morrow. Staking my new acquisition out upon the plain, we returned to the lodge, and my strange friend, handing me a hair bridle and a buffalo robe and leathern girth, told me to get some food and return to his lodge in an hour, and he would paint me for the warpath. I was too much excited to eat much, and my simple meal was soon dispatched. On entering the temple, I had looked around apprehensively, expecting to meet Wako Mekla, and rather dreading to encounter him, feeling uncertain what sort of reception I might meet with. The old medicine man, however, was not to be seen, and I wandered through the various apartments with which I had become so familiar during the long years of my captivity, wondering if this was really to be my last look at them, or if my desperate scheme was to result in failure and end in my being brought back, perhaps to torture and death. It was now time for me to return to Hiso de Cha, and I started to leave the temple for that purpose. Crossing the mystery chamber, I was about to ascend the ladder when a tall form suddenly emerged from the obscurity of a recess in the wall, and Wako Mekla stood before me. The old man seemed strangely moved for one of his stern nature and practical stoicism. Taking me by the hand, he led me to the center of the room where the light of the sacred fire enabled him to more plainly discern my features, and gazed upon me for a moment without speaking. At length he spoke in a low tone, unlike his usual sonorous accents. So my son is not content to remain in peace and safety with me here but longs to go forth in search of adventure and to emulate the deeds of the foolish young braves who imagine that they are already great warriors. I was at a loss what to reply, but managed to mutter a few words expressive of my desire to take part in at least one war party and assured him that I would be certain to return in safety. You cannot be sure of that, said the old man, in what seemed to be a sad tone. We cannot control our fate, but as you wish to go, you shall have your wish. At Stowahan's request, I have given my consent, and I shall sacrifice to Kowetsuakoto for your speedy and safe return. Now go and complete your preparations, for you have no time to lose. So saying, he turned and left the apartment without another word. 
at this moment, despite my ardent longing to escape from an existence that was loathsome to me and return to my own people, I could not avoid a feeling of regret at the idea of parting from this noble specimen of his race, to whom I was indebted for my life and for the many acts of kindness which had rendered my captivity endurable. But the measure of regret I felt was not sufficient to turn me from my purpose, and remembering my appointment with Hiso de Cha, I hastened to fulfill it. In crossing the open square before the temple, I met Stone Awan, who informed me that the party would start at daybreak, and warned me to be in readiness. Assuring him that there was no danger of my forgetting it, I hurried to the lodge of the renegade, whom I found in no very amiable humor at my delay. On explaining the cause of my detention, his ill temper was abated, and he quickly proceeded to prepare me for my appearance in my new role of an Indian warrior. Stripping me entirely, he invested me with a new pair of leggings and moccasins, leaving me naked to the waist. Producing a number of little packets containing pigments of various colors, he commenced operations by painting my face, neck, and breast blood red, and my arms and the rest of my person that was exposed in alternate bands of black and yellow. Upon my breast, he delineated with considerable skill the figure of a grizzly bear, upon my forehead a star, and across my face narrow stripes of black. My arms he encircled with black and white rings at regular intervals, and then laying aside his colors, held up before me a small mirror, that I might view the picture I presented. My contemplation of myself satisfied me that I made about as hideous-looking a savage as any in the village, but of that the reader can judge for himself from the accompanying picture, which is a very accurate representation of me as I then appeared. Yeso Ditcha finished his work by saturating my hair, which reached nearly to my waist with a mixture of oil and some black coloring, which rendered my appearance more savage than ever. He then bound about my head a narrow fillet or band of scarlet cloth, and placed in it two feathers or plumes stained blue. He then stood off and viewed me for a moment, and pronounced my toilet complete, with the exception of a few ornaments. These he soon provided in the shape of a pair of bracelets of roughly beaten gold. My necklace of silver, which Wako Mekla had placed upon my neck when he first took me in charge, I still wore, and the renegade, surveying his work with some complacency, remarked that no young brave of the party would present a finer or more warlike appearance from the Indian point of view than myself. He then presented me with a fine serape for protection against the weather, 
and advising me to get what sleep I could, dismissed me for the night, bidding me lie down in his lodge upon some skins. My excitement, however, was so great that I found it impossible to sleep. I was impatient for the dawn, that I might be in motion, and leaving my hated valley prison, as I fondly hoped for the last time. The hours dragged wearily away, and it seemed as if the morning would never come. But at last, a faint glimmer of light in the east showed that the time for action had come. I started up, and taking my simple horse furniture, made my way to where the horses were picketed. I found many of the warriors already astir and lending their horses to the water. Joining them, I had soon attended to the wants of my charger, bridled him, and snapping the buffalo robe upon his back, I mounted him and rode back to the lodge of Hesso de Cha. At the same time, he emerged from the lodge in all the full glory of his war paint. His horse had already been brought up by one of his band, and advising me to eat as hearty a meal as possible, he mounted and rode down to where the warriors were assembling. Hastily devouring a few mouthfuls of Teseo, I speedily followed him and although but a few moments had elapsed, found the party almost ready to start. The entire population of the village had by this time assembled to see us off, and I found myself the subject of some very flattering remarks as I rode through the throngs of women, children, and dogs, while immediately surrounding the war party were grouped all the male members of the community who were not of the expedition. The renegade had directed me to attach myself to his band, and I accordingly did so, being received with great cordiality by the younger braves, who complimented me on my warlike aspect and fine equipments. Stone Hoan, who had been holding a hurried consultation with Tan Soroyo, who stood aloof, as though not wishing to compromise his dignity by evincing any interest in an expedition which he did not lead, now rode up and gave the signal for departure. Instantly the band, numbering about five hundred warriors, wheeled, and forming with the rapidity of thought in single file, the only formation used on the march by the prairie Indians rode off at a rapid pace down the valley, amid the shouts and yells of those we left behind. By this time, the sun had fully risen, and on looking back I could see upon the summit of the temple the usual group of priests and their assistants, and among them I could plainly distinguish the tall figure of Wako Mekla. I fancied that I could see him wave his hand as if in adieu, but it may have been only fancy, for the distance was too great to decide with certainty. As we rode rapidly along, 
I noted every object rendered familiar by my long residence in the valley with a peculiar interest, for I hoped that I was looking upon the well-known scene for the last time. It was a glorious morning, and the exhilaration of the rapid motion, as my horse bore me along with proud, springy step, seemed to increase my strength, and I experienced a buoyancy of spirits and a vigor of body I had never known before. I felt strangely hopeful and exultant. In fact, it seemed as if I were already free. Riding rapidly, we soon reached the valley's lower extremity, and passing around the face of the cliff upon the narrow ledge described in a previous chapter, we crossed the crest of the mountain range and descended by a zigzag trail to the plain below. Our route lay directly across the desert to the eastward, and it was well into the afternoon before we had passed it and reached the great grass prairie beyond. On reaching the prairie, our course was deflected to the north, and about sundown we halted at a spring known as the Yoho Caliente, which the leaders of the party had evidently selected as our camping ground for the night. The order to halt once given, we went into bivouac with marvelous celerity. Our horses were picketed in a wide circle far out upon the plain, as the grama grass there is longer and more luxuriant than in the immediate neighborhood of the springs. Stripping our animals of their equipments, we bring them to within about a hundred yards of the spring. Each man strikes his spear into the ground and rests against it his shield, bow, and quiver. He places his robe or skin beside it. There is his tent and bed. The row of spears are soon aligned upon the prairie, forming a front of several hundred yards, and our camp is complete. No drilled troops in the world can equal the rapidity with which these Indians form or break camp, and yet every movement is executed without orders, and as if by intuition. Fires were soon kindled, and strips of taseo brought forth and cooked. Pipes were lighted, and the warriors sit in groups around the red blaze, recounting their adventures and laughing and chattering incessantly. The paint glitters upon their naked bodies and the glare of the fires. It is a wild and savage scene, and yet grotesque in its very savageness. For two hours we remain about the fires, some cooking and eating, others smoking, others freshening the hideous devices of the war paint with which all are besmeared. Then the horse guard is detailed and marches off to the cabalada, and the Indians, one after another, spread their robes upon the ground, roll themselves in their serapes or blankets, and are soon asleep. For a time I found it impossible to sleep, although wearied with the unaccustomed exercise of the journey. Reclining upon my robe in a half-sitting posture, 
I watch the scene around me. The fires have ceased to blaze, but by the light of the moon I can distinguish the prostrate bodies of the savages. White objects are moving among them. They are dogs, prowling about in search of the remains of their supper. These run from point to point, growling at one another and barking at the coyotes that sneak around the outskirts of the camp. Out upon the prairie, the horses are still awake and busy. I can hear them stamping their hooves and cropping the rich pasture. At intervals along the line, I can see erect forms standing motionless. These are the guards of the Cabalada. At length, I begin to grow drowsy, and lying down upon my robe, I wrap myself in my serape, and in a few moments am asleep. End of chapter 23